Hey, welcome to Access. John here. You probably know that the church has been accused of just about everything under the sun, and there are many in the world who would like to see the church come to an untimely end. I think this is because much of the time Christians have been offensive. But what can we do about it? Good question. Today we're going to talk about the offensive nature of many Christians and how we're supposed to be here. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 7 verses 10 through 31 because this message is entitled, All Been Out of Shape. What would it take for you to get all bent out of shape? I mean, when do you typically get offended? Most people can suffer all kinds of abuse, but when you start messing with the family, well, that's when the gloves come off. You had especially better steer clear of talking about my mama. Now, I think we all like to think we have a pretty high tolerance for annoyance. However, sometimes we discover that there is a line that people should not cross with us. And I think that line's different for everyone. Personally, the best way to make me mad is to start treating me like I'm stupid. It's extremely offensive to su suggest that somebody isn't good enough, whether that be intelligence or social status or education or race or lack of money, etc. I get offended when people start acting like they're better than me. And, you know, I think that's true universally. I think that pretty much everybody feels the same way. Nobody likes being treated as if they're inferior. Think about this. Have you ever acted like you were better than someone else? Now, I, I, I think this can certainly happen in church. I'll never forget my first day of orientation while standing in line at Bible college. I was behind a guy named Brody who was there to, quote, level up as a Christian so he could cast out demons. You see, apparently his pastor regularly made him feel inferior. And I say that because he said, quote, I am only a level three Christian, but my pastor is a level seven Christian, so he can cast out demons and I can't, so that's why I'm at school. And I thought to myself, this guy's bananas. And it sounds like he's been playing video games way too long, which I confess is pretty much the pot calling the kettle black in that, in that regard. But in my mind, while I was standing in line listening to this guy, I made a judgment. I had decided that I was superior to this guy because he was so foolish and I was so mature. But is it wrong if it's true? I mean, the guy was foolish. And I did have more maturity because I'm not so foolish as to believe that Christians can, quote, level up. Is it wrong if I acknowledge that I'm more mature? Or was somebody who is truly more spiritually mature not categorize and look down on others? Well, I think those who have been in church a long time have a tendency to look down on people who just walk through the doors. We can think, oh yeah, here comes another neophyte. Come on in, Junior, let me show you how a real Christian behaves. You know, I think we usually don't say those things with our mouths, but we typically feel this way in our hearts, don't we? I mean, we should know we spiritually size up people because hasn't there been a time when you've looked at another Christian and thought, man, they seem to have it all together. I wish I was more like them. Like just the other day, I went to a wedding, uh, a childhood friend's wedding, and, and I got to see the youth pastor that I grew up under, and I was explaining to him, we just got a conversation as to why Moses had to have written the first five books of the Bible. And I started talking to him about the lineage which I admit I'm a little bit rusty on. Well, Keith, my former youth pastor, started spouting it off just like one name after the other. And I thought, wow, I forgot who I was talking to. This guy knows his stuff. I wish I was more like him. 
Well, if we're constantly sizing people up and determining whether or not they are spiritually superior, wouldn't it also make sense that we categorize people as spiritually inferior as well? When you start acting like you're better than someone else, that's when you start getting offensive. And I think the modern church has started trying to swing the pendulum back the other way in recent years. We know that our culture typically takes offense at Christians. They say we're hypocritical and judgmental, which is without question undoubtedly true. Because we're human. But because of that, the church in general has made attempts to not be so offensive. I think in attempts of being, quote, more loving, we don't call out sin when we see it. Okay, I got to tell you one more story from school. There was a guy I went to school with at BUA who would stand out. He would take a trumpet and he would stand out in the central yard and he would blow it. And everybody look at him and he'd yell out, There's sin on the campus! There's sin on the campus! It seems like Bible college is where all the crazy people go to school. Well, everybody except for me, that is. Have you ever blown a trumpet at somebody? I mean, we, we typically, typically try to avoid this scenario. So God bless the guy blowing the trumpet somewhere. I, I think we typically don't want to be accused of being judgmental hypocrites, right? We know we shouldn't try to make others feel like they are inferior. However, should we completely steer clear of offending others? I mean, is that what Jesus did? Today we're going to study a passage of scripture where Jesus is in conflict with the Jewish people at the Feast of Tabernacles. And from this passage, I think we'll see how Jesus spoke the truth and still somehow remained sinless. And it's my prayer that we discover a way to be truly loving. I want to read John chapter 7, verses 10 through 31. This is what it says. It says, however, remember Jesus, uh, his brothers tried to get him to go, and he said, no, 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 the time's not right. Well, this is what it says in verse 10. However... After his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now the feast the Jews were waiting, at the feast the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds there was a widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're a demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses, Moses gave you circumcision, though it had actually not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if the child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry at, with, with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Is this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. 
And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than than these uh, signs than this man let's let's pray father god we come to you now and we just ask god that you just reveal your truth through the scripture father help me to communicate your truth father i pray that it would be you speaking and not me and that father if there is a uh, an offense i pray god that you would um, straighten it out father we love you and all these things i pray in jesus name amen so the first thing i want to show from this passage of scripture is that jesus was offensive Jesus spoke the truth, and and nothing is more offensive than the truth. In verse 10, it says that Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles, not publicly, but in secret. Now, I went back to study the original Greek on this one, and I don't think the in secret or uh, crypto, uh, was the word crypto, meaning hidden, I don't think it meant that Jesus went to the festival dressed up as a ninja. I believe the reason Jesus or John wrote this was to make a distinction between Jesus going now versus the triumphant entry into Jerusalem later. In other words, it wasn't announced, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, in verse 11, if Jesus wasn't dressed up as a ninja lurking in the shadows, it says that the Jews were looking for him and were still not able to find him. Now, I don't think this, this absolutely does not mean that every Jew was looking for him. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews that came from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from all over. And um, there was a group of, quote, the Jews that were looking for Jesus. And, and we see in verse 13 that the people wouldn't say anything publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. They weren't afraid of themselves. They were afraid of the Jews who called the shots. And one of the worst things that could happen to a Jew in those days was that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue by the Jews. So uh, I think that's pretty much the equivalent of being a Catholic, being excommunicated from the Catholic Church. It, it means you're going to be cut off from God. Now notice, though, that these Jews weren't looking for him. They were looking for him, and they weren't able to find him. Yet Jesus was still able to hear what people were saying about him as if he weren't there. That'd be an interesting experience. I think maybe you'd agree. Wouldn't you want to know how people talk about when you're not around? Um, I think, you know, sometimes we find out things that people have said about us when we're not around, and maybe that creates an offense. Maybe it should. I don't know. But it makes sense how this scenario could happen. The out-of-towners wouldn't recognize Jesus. Everybody's heard of him, but we don't know what he looks like. Yet then again, if Jesus doesn't want to be recognized, he won't be. Remember the, the walk to Emmaus where, where Jesus, after he was resurrected, his own disciples didn't recognize him until he wanted them to? I think the point here is it isn't that Jesus was lurking in the shadows, but that everyone seemed to have an opinion about Jesus, and he got to hear them. Verse 12 says there was widespread whispering about him. See, this passage shows that there are, are many reactions uh, that people can have in relation to Jesus. Some said he was a good man. People say that today. Some said he was a deceiver. People say that today. Some say that he was demon-possessed. Others said he was the Christ. Others said he was the prophet Moses talk about, talked about. Well, it's very interesting that everyone was talking about him, yet nobody wanted to publicly vouch for him because they lived in fear. See, no one experienced loneliness like Jesus especially when he went to the cross. And I think that should bring comfort when we're feeling lonely and we can read Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 20 when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a friend that's closer than a brother. But remember, there were people who were saying that Jesus was the Christ, but no one spoke publicly for him. And I think a good question to ask ourselves here is, am I making a stand for Christ, or do I just sit around and talk about him? Remember, Jesus is offensive. He told his brothers in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. Now, I think uh, even later on in John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. See, in the modern-day church, we have a difficult uh, time stomaching the truth that Jesus was offensive. However, Jesus spoke the truth, and he was able to do it because he kept the law. He was sinless. In other words, Jesus corrected other people, and he didn't have that. He wasn't a hypocrite like like us. However, you know, as he as he kept the law, Jesus didn't act superior. He is superior. He was superior. In, in, in verse 14, it says that halfway through the feast, which is on the fourth day of the eighth day, eight-day festival, or maybe the fifth day, Jesus went to the temple courts and began to teach. And in verse 19, he asked the people, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. What did Jesus say? He said, You're a bunch of sinners and lawbreakers. In other words, Jesus had a trumpet. There's sin on the campus. Now, we don't like that idea. We want Jesus to be standing off to the side and silent with open arms. Whenever we're done sinning, we can come to him. But Jesus called it like he saw it without fear of being offensive. You see, sometimes Jesus was intentionally offensive. Why? Because Jesus offended to restore, not to destroy. Remember why the Jews were looking for him to kill him? Because he healed a lame man by the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't obey their man-made rules about the Sabbath, and he had compassion on a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Now, one would think that a man who had been crippled for 38 years, whenever he gets healed, nobody would care when it happened, just that it happened. But see, these people were offended because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. Jesus however, always had an agenda for when he offended. He didn't offend because he was angry or because he wanted to hurt someone, which is where we tend to get in trouble. Think about this, though. Jesus could have gone on any day of the week and healed the guy. God waited 38 years to heal this man, and he went on the one day when it would be the most offensive? Why? Well, good question. Here's an idea. When we're offended, our spiritual maturity is revealed. Just because you've been in church for a while, it doesn't make you godly. Notice that in verse 15, when Jesus was teaching in the temple, the people were amazed and asked the question, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Why would they ask this question? It's because the people, the only men who were supposed to teach with authority, were those who had been sanctioned or approved by the high priest of the Sanhedrin. To be approved by the high priest meant a rigorous training process and extensive testing and knowledge about the Torah. You know, one time my dad um, said he was talking to his mom about 
their pastor search committee. And he was asking her, you know, what are you guys looking for in a pastor? He said, we're having such a tough time finding a pastor. He said, well, what are you looking for? And she said, well, we want him to be in his early 40s. He needs to be married. He needs to have children. We want him to have his PhD or at the very least be pursuing it. And we'd like for him to have at least 10 years of experience serving as a senior pastor in a large church. My dad asked her, do you realize that with all of those requirements, Jesus himself couldn't serve at your church? Jesus didn't have any of those things. Which is why God doesn't choose the qualified. God qualifies the chosen. Notice Jesus says in verse 16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. See, man cannot educate man to communicate spiritual truth. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was being hunted down by men who spent their lives in a religious education system. Had they learned nothing? See, Jesus didn't have the authority to teach from the Sanhedrin, yet he was teaching complex teachings from God. People were being spiritually communicated to. That in and of itself was pretty offensive. Yet when questioned about his schooling, Jesus just challenged his listeners to put his words into practice and test whether or not he was telling the truth. He says, anyone who does God's will will find out that my teaching comes from God. God will not contradict himself. Jesus was showing them that they were not doing the will of God. And that is so offensive. Again, he tells him in verse 18, Moses gave you the law and you can't keep it. And then he asked, why are you trying to kill me? Now, it's interesting. The crowd accuses him of being demon-possessed here, and they ask the question, who's trying to kill you? I think what Jesus was doing here was two things. Is he was whitewashing the crowd because its leaders, uh, not the out-of-towners, are trying to kill Jesus. But it is very, very ironic. The second point is, is that what happens towards the end of this passage is pretty much what he says. We'll get to that in just a minute. Jesus shows the inconsistency of our lives, though. He did this with the Jews. He showed them how, how they had inconsistencies in what they believed. He says, you know, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you guys get all bent out of shape. I mean, it's ridiculous. You, you guys are getting uh, uh, upset at me, yet Moses gave you circumcision, and on the eighth day after birth, it doesn't matter. You, you circumcise a child whether, you know, it's the Sabbath or not. He, he says, why are you angry at me? Because I healed the whole man, not just one part, on the Sabbath. It should not offend us when people get healed, but it often does. And I think, you know, like I said, God's been, been lame and, and for 38 years. When does it, does it matter when? Just, just that? Let's be happy. But see, that's not what happened. This man got healed and the people were offended. And I think this because we, we often feel like we're working for love. And, and you might not be following me. Just stay with me. We're working to please God. We do that. And when someone, maybe a man who's been laying invalid for 38 years, maybe somebody who's been spiritually dead for 38 years and, and is maybe a severe alcoholic in town or wife abuser or whatever, a child molester, we don't know, we don't care. But someone who hasn't worked quite as hard as we have, you know, comes, comes snooping around and starts asking questions about things of God and maybe even accepts us, you know, accepts God that, that we're put on equal ground with this man, we become indignant. 
But listen to me, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel tells us that God is already pleased with us because of what he has done through his son, not because of what we have done. So we can't sit around and feel self-righteous about ourselves because, man, I'm pleasing God, but that guy isn't. For those of us who've been in church for a while, we need to constantly be reminded that we're not working to please God. God is already pleased. We don't work trying to gain God's approval. We work because we love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. See, Jesus warns his listeners to stop judging by mere appearances and instead make a right judgment. Now, I think this is great advice, but when he said this, he said this in reference to himself. Remember, they had already concluded that Jesus was of the devil when they accused him of being demon-possessed. Some Jews then ask in verses 25 to 27, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. See, this verse shows that God, I think, has an excellent sense of humor. Jesus can hide in broad daylight if he wants to. Right in front of your eyes, in front of your face. And he says later on in verse 34, You'll look for me, but you will not find me. He confirms it. Yet in verses 26 and 27, these Jews made a point that, that many Jews still make today, is that we knew we know where this man is from. See, the Jews believed that there would be a mystery of the anticipated Messiah which no one could answer. It was why they believed the Messiah would simply just appear. However, Justin Martyr, a Jewish scholar, however, later confirms a, a more rational thought on the topic, saying that the identity, uh, identity of the Messiah would not be known until it was confirmed by the prophet Elijah, which is why John the Baptist, the Christ-confirmed Elijah, says in John 1.31, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, they jumped to conclusion when they thought that they wouldn't know where he came from. In fact, the prophet Micah confirmed that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, it's, it's almost comical because first they say they know where he's from, but later in verse 42, they says, Does the scripture not say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? The town where David lived? See, they didn't think Jesus came from Bethlehem because he was from Galilee. But you can move around, people. They weren't making a right judgment because they didn't have all the facts. They didn't have all the facts because they weren't consulting God. And I think this can happen to us as well. We don't have all the information, and we often judge people without consulting God on the matter. And I think when we're all bent out of shape, God can straighten us out. So when we offend people, when we're offended, God can straighten us out. God can straighten them out. I think sometimes God offends us, by speaking the truth, of course, for the purpose of getting glory through our growth. Pain is, a, is the probably the most powerful motivator. God often brings us pain so that we will grow. And Jesus tells these people, yeah, you know me, and you know where I'm from, something that should not be a problem if they really know the scriptures, but... I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. And you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Woo! Jesus said the most offensive thing he could have possibly said to these people. To a group of people who prided themselves as being, quote, God's chosen people. 
The most offensive thing he could have said to them was, you think you know God, but you don't. Now remember how Jesus said in in verse 19, why are you trying to kill me? Here, Here they are in verse 30 trying to do that very thing. God knows what's going to get us all bent out of shape, and sometimes he brings that offense to us. So I think as Christians, when we're offended, we should learn to recognize that we we have freedom to fly off the handle and get all bent out of shape if we want. But I think we we can choose to take offense at something and hurt other people. And there are typically two responses we can have when we're offended. Either we will try to hurt others because we're hurting— or we will learn to take that offense before God and allow Him to help us to heal from it. You see, the, the Jews in this passage did the former. They tried to seize Jesus, but here we, we see Him escape because it was not according to God's divine timetable that Jesus would be crucified at this time. I think from this passage we can draw an incredible truth, and that is that self-control is a sign of spiritual maturity. The difference between what they did and what they should have done was spiritual maturity. Jesus told them, you're spiritually dead. You've not even been made alive yet. You don't even know God. But, you know, as a Christian, someone who knows God, haven't there been times when you look back on how you acted or maybe something you said and you were just ashamed at your behavior? Well, in those moments, have you also noticed that God doesn't seem to remove that embarrassment from you? See, that embarrassment from acting out when we're all bent out of shape, it should motivate us to exercise self-control. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. God wants to shape you and form you into being like His Son. And sometimes God offends us to get us there. Jesus is offensive. But see, Jesus doesn't offend because He wants to hurt us. He does it because He loves us. Jesus says, those whom I love, I discipline. And guess what? (laughs) Sometimes offense is part of that discipline. I think we as the church, we must learn two very important lessons about calling out sin when we see it. There's sin on the campus! We as the church must first learn to speak speak truth in love. We must learn to speak the truth in love. So much of the time when we correct other people, we do it from the standpoint of pride or self-righteousness. We might even say things like, well, you know, you ought to be a lot more like me. When the truth is, is that we aren't righteous on our own. We aren't made righteous on our own. We didn't work for our righteousness. We've been given grace and mercy. We didn't get what we deserved. We're not superior. We're simply sinners saved by grace. We have to speak the truth as Jesus spoke the truth. We shouldn't swing the pendulum back the other way and say, well, I'm just not going to help other people by correcting them. That's what the church does. We're supposed to correct each other. However, Jesus also spoke the truth to heal and restore, not to destroy. Sometimes we can just be better people. That we need healing and we're refusing to deal with it. So we don't we don't want to work on the issues in us. And so we just we just point to other people and say, you know what? I'm better than you, and you need to be better, and you need to be better, and you need to be better because you need to be more like me. But we're ugly and we're hurt and we're broken. And we need to be restored with God. And so so we need to we need to learn to speak the truth 
in love. Jesus offended the Jews to show them their lack of a relationship with God. It was a wake-up call, and they hated him for it. And you know, that could easily be the case for us, but we have to to have a clean conscience and right conscience and righteousness, we must correct others out of love without fear of offense. But just like we must learn to uh, speak the truth in love, we as the church must also learn to look for the love in the truth. We don't need to jump to an offense and, and, and attempt to hurt others because we're hurting. We, 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 must, we must take those offenses before the Lord and ask Him, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? I'm hurt by this. You know, for example, if you're still in scratch-offs and someone tells you that it's wrong and you get angry because you feel judged, that's your flesh reacting. you got to look for the love and the truth spoken to you. One time my wife said something. We were just dating at the time. She said the ugliest thing she could have possibly said to me. She said, John, I just don't see any evidence of your salvation. And I just said, you know what? You're right. Let's go have ice cream. No, I was upset. That was offensive. And I couldn't believe she said it to me. It made me mad. But you know what? God showed me that she said that to me because she loved me. She wanted me to grow. Jesus spoke the truth for the purpose of restoration. And we must learn to look for love in the spoken truth in order to be restored. Don't be deceived. Instead, make a right judgment about Jesus and the words of Jesus being spoken through his church. God is not going to keep us from offense because we're saved. God will put us through the fire to refine us. I want to end with a story. One day a jeweler was training an apprentice, and he showed him how he refined gold. And he stuck the gold in the fire, and he waited, and he watched as the fire burned off the impurities. And the apprentice asked the master, hasn't it been long enough? And the master jeweler said, no. And the apprentice asked, well, how can you know when all of the impurities have been burned off? And the master replied, I'll know when it's finished when I see my own reflection. You see, as followers of Christ, God will refine us in the fire. There will be offenses. Not because he wants to hurt us, but because he loves us. And when you're offended, take note that God wants you to learn some valuable lessons from the offense. God will only remove you from the fire when he sees his reflection in you. And God will continue refining us until he sees himself in us. God wants to shape us into the image of Christ. Because in truth, we're not good enough. And if that's offensive, well, it should be. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.